Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 510 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week and in the case of AEW, the last week plus in the world's yes of AEW and NXT. We have an absolute ton to discuss on today's show, not only Collision, Rampage and Dynamite from this week, but also some straggler content from Collision and Rampage last week that fits into current storylines ongoing in AEW. And then on the NXT side of the coin, obviously coming off of the biggest show in NXT history last week, the question was, what are they going to do this week in what was very much an in-between show on the build to the two-night Halloween Havoc special at the end of the month. So as you can tell, a ton to get to today. We're not wasting any more time off the top. Allow me to remind you right away that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please remember to visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. There is also the opportunity to comment on individual episodes on Spotify. So if you have something positive to say, feel free to do that as well. I never really mention it, but it is technically an option, an opportunity for us uh, to get some comments on our uh, Spotify uh, feed, I guess, for lack of a better term. So again, you can go ahead and do that. What you can also go ahead and do is give us a follow on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that. You can also DM and tweet us questions and comments for the show, and we will try our best to read as many of them and answer as many of them on this program as we can. Again, all of that on Twitter, at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I truly hope that you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You will get news posts every single week, along with Bonus audio after the major American shows uh, Monday through Friday. Best that we possibly can. Obviously, schedules get in the way. Some weeks we do four, some weeks we do three, but we try to do as many as possible. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. We would greatly appreciate your support. And we may have uh, some other ways that you can support the show outside of the Buy Me A Coffee platform uh, in the near future. I do want to also mention off the top of this show, I found out uh, earlier this week that Getting Over has been nominated for a sports podcast award, which obviously means a lot. Now, the chances of us winning going up against some of the bigger shows, you know, I don't necessarily know, uh, but I am thrilled that we have that nomination. But what is being requested from me uh, to kind of make our case are short clips from the show, like three to five minute clips, along with a full episode that we want to submit for consideration. So look, we have taped 510 episodes in total, and I think like 120 uh, this year alone. I think this is actually our 121st episode of the year. So because of that, I don't necessarily know what the best episode is or what the best three to five minute clips uh, that were produced all year. So I would absolutely love your guys' help. So please tweet us 
at Getting Overcast. You can DM us. You can also email us, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. Let us know what episode should we submit? What three to five minute clips did you find uh, the most entertaining, the most informative? Whatever the case might, might be, it could be anything from one of the CM Punk rants to a funny back and forth that uh, Vintage and I have had on the show uh, to an instant analysis episode, like really whatever it is, I just don't even know where to start. So uh, you are the listeners. I trust you all more than I trust myself when it comes to what entertained you and what you found to be the best podcasting that we've done uh, in 2023. I would seriously appreciate your help. So again, at Getting Overcast on Twitter, send us a DM. You can also tweet us. Um, but gettingoverpod at gmail.com is another way to reach us. If you do not use Twitter, I would love to have answers at some point before Monday. So that way I can submit everything Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. So thank you all for kind of uh, grinding in and doing some of that work for us. Like I said, we would greatly appreciate it. So with that said, let's actually get into breaking down everything that happened across AEW and NXT this week. Now, normally this has been a more newsworthy week for AEW. So I would actually start with AEW. The problem though, is not only did I have five hours of programming to cover from this week, like I said, there's probably the equivalent of another hour of programming, things that we need to catch up on and bring into the conversation that we were not able to discuss last week because of the huge NXT AEW battle. We spent a lot of time on that episode. It was our most listened to uh, Thursday equivalent episode that we've ever put out there, you know, regarding NXT and AEW as the main topics of the show. So I love that you guys were so passionate about it. We got great comments on it. That was great. Uh, but it does put us in an interesting position this week where we kind of need to double back. And really, AEW, like I said, it is the featured part of this program today. Um, but we are going to kick off with NXT just to kind of, I don't want to say get it out of the way, treat it like it's not important, but it's just shorter. It's easier to kind of get through. And then we can spend a lot of time on the back end talking about AEW. As always, there are timestamps in the episode description. So if you want to listen to half of it now, half of it later, you have that opportunity. Uh, as always, I hope you listen to the show in its entirety. So with that said, we are going to kick off with NXT. Uh, Carmelo Hayes hit the ring talking about walking alongside John Cena and The Undertaker last week. Baron Corbin quickly interrupted, saying fans should be in the stands, not in the ring, basically calling Mello a mark. Then Dijak came out just yelling like usual. Fans were rightly bored, so they started chanting Carmelo Hayes, kind of like John Cena sucks. Ilya Dragunov then popped on the big screen saying they should all be focused on their number one contendership match, not petty squabbles. Uh, then Dragunov announced that Cody Rhodes made a bonus decision as general manager before midnight last week. The match will actually not be a triple threat, but rather a fatal four-way, and Trick Williams came out as that fourth man, leaving Mello completely stunned. Dijak called Williams out for stabbing Hayes in the back. Corbin called Mello shook, because, you know, ain't no such things as halfway crooks. Then he pointed out that Trick did all of this behind Mello's back and never even told them about it. Mello somewhat had Trick's back, but then they faced each other only for the heels to attack. Hayes almost attacked Williams once they cleared the ring. Just a very brief moment. He chose not to. It was really good camera work on that situation. The start of the segment was, I gotta be honest, it was excruciating. But the addition of Trick completely amped up the entire deal. The heels were actually right that Williams, what he did was shady. It was shady as hell. And we saw an NXT anonymous social media video earlier in the day 
with Trick speaking one-on-one with Cody and then dapping up. And obviously that happened last week. So that played out in the booking here. And it did show us and tell us that Trick kind of went behind Melo's back, got himself added to the match and didn't even bring it up with him for an entire week until Draganov announced it here. It does seem strange that Melo had to win his way into this and Trick sauntered in just because, but it does work for the storyline reasons themselves. Uh, Mello admonished Trick backstage after the segment. Williams said Cena gave him advice last week about timing being the most important thing. Trick said he's in the same spot Mello was a year ago, and he apologized for keeping him in the dark, but he said he was understandably nervous to tell him. Mello said he's done nothing to be nervous about because he would have had his back, but now they got to fight it out and do whatever it takes to win. Then they agreed to be Trick Mello gang no matter what. They dapped up, but Hayes was at least a little iffy about it when Williams left the room. Then later backstage, Trick was shown laid out between a bunch of road cases and Mello and trainers, they all ran to his aid and Trick was ultimately sent to the hospital and did not go into the match. And I got to tell you, the interactions between these guys, and this is not something new on this podcast or new to a lot of fans of NXT, but it just told me both of these guys, they have it. You have it. You couldn't get rid of it. You couldn't sell it if you wanted to. You are it. I think I'm going to have to recut that Chris Jericho sound drop because it didn't work the way I expected. But this was just a really solid reality-based segment with each guy reacting exactly as he should given the circumstances. Trick's reasoning was valid, as was Mello's anger, because he was blindsided by his ride or die. You got to hope, though, that this is a swerve because there's really no reason to break up Mello and Trick, especially in like an underhanded way like this. This isn't a DIY situation where it's two singles who came together and, you know, were very successful as a tag team and then you split them up. They didn't become best friends in kayfabe. They started their careers that way. So that's a whole different scenario if you're considering breaking up a team like that. But I loved everything that we got from these segments. I just thought it they knocked it out of the park, particularly backstage together. So we had that number one contendership match, Hayes, Corbin, Dijak, Corbin hit a very rare flying clothesline off the second rope. Then he took Hayes down with a Death Valley driver at ringside. Mello flipped Corbin into Dijak for high justice, only to eat a discus boot from Dijak. Hayes then caught Corbin and Dijak on the ropes for a combination powerbomb release German suplex. Dijak obviously did the athletic part of that. Dijak flipped out of a Corbin chokeslam attempt. Then Corbin countered Feast Your Eyes into End of Days, only for Mello to catch Corbin with nothing but net and then pin Dijak to get a rematch with Dragunov. So obviously the booking is meant to lead us to believe that Trick is going to get involved either to save Mello from whoever attacked him or possibly to confront Mello about the attack. I prefer the attacking party to be someone other than Mello. And surely you can glean that from my comments a moment ago. But there are a ton of options. You could do a debuting Lexus King trying to make a statement. Joe Gacy trying to find himself. That would make a lot of sense. Or better yet, and maybe the best option out of all of this, Wesley coming back as a heel because he's been pissed off not just with Mello, but with Mello's friendship with Trick. In fact, that really should be the booking. It makes way too much sense the way uh, he left. If you remember the last thing that he saw Wesley was Trick and Mello, you know, getting on the same page in the locker room, and then he rolled his eyes and stormed off, all of that. So, um That would make a lot of sense for it to be Wesley. It's just that if Mello is not the attacker, 
then why have him win this and run this match back a third time so soon? I mean, these Hayes and, and Dragunov matches just happened. So we're doing a trilogy in like, what, two months? I mean, it feels like it should be a lot more stretched out than that. The only explanation otherwise could be that Melo is getting called up and perhaps leaving the territory with Trick staying behind. And if that's the case, I don't know that I love that either. Though, obviously, Hayes is far more polished and experienced than Williams, and he's more ready for a main roster call-up. So a lot of unknowns here, but a solid match, bell to bell, lots of fun. I went 3.75 stars and a B-plus for the main event. Fallon Henley was holding court backstage, telling the rookies about how great the breakout tournament can be, even if you don't win. So Tiffany Stratton came in saying they should all hear from someone who actually won it. Tiff disrespected Fallon, they argued, and then Stratton left. Clearly, this is setting up Henley as Stratton's next challenger, and that works just fine, especially if it's a TV match at Halloween Havoc or sometime soon. It's good to kind of get her out of the way of the title picture, but she also does deserve a chance to be in a significant singles match. And I really can't think back and remember a time, I guess, other than Kiana James, where she was in a match that truly mattered. So it's going to be interesting to see how she does. I did get an opportunity to see her wrestle singles. I think it was for an NXT level up match while I was uh, in Orlando. And she did very solid job in that match, but certainly she's had better ones. Uh, Dominic Mysterio and Nathan Frazier got into a brawl in the NXT kitchen area with like a dozen other wrestlers cheering them on. It continued all the way out into the arena and ultimately the ring with Frazier hitting a swinging neckbreaker only for Rhea Ripley to save Dom from a Phoenix splash attempt. It was a good quick segment to build their feud and presumably they'll have a title match coming up. So the bada bing, bada boom battle royal happened. Uh, brawling brutes were involved from the main roster and D'Angelo family watched from the crow's nest while they were eating pasta. Ridge Holland eliminated Idris Inoufe and Malik Blade simultaneously by himself. Creed Brothers, Chase U, and Los Lotharios were the final three. Julius Creed easily eliminated Umberto Creo, but no referee saw it. So he and Angel Garza came back in, threw the Creeds out. Then it became a real match with Thea Hale and JC Jane coming down, holding pom-poms to cheer Chase U. Duke Hudson wrecked shit on a hot tag. Garza eliminated Hudson outside. Creo then rolled Chase into a deadlift Liger bomb, which was sick. The Creeds came back to give the heels a taste of their own medicine with a distraction, and then Chase caught Garza in a trap pinning combination for the win. I thought it was Chef's Kiss with the match layout and a really creative finish. It feels like NXT has found its groove in the tag team division again. Creating a secondary tag team feud with the Creeds and Garza and Creo, that was also really smart coming out of it, especially because you could have one of those teams win and become the next challengers, hopefully Garza and Creo, as we've discussed. The minor problem is that both of those teams, the Creeds and then Garza and Creo, are better than Chase U. They just are. It's as simple as that. And they're better than D'Angelo family, the champions as well. That's a far better title match between those two teams than D'Angelo family and Chase U. But my expectation is whoever wins that feud between the Creeds, Garza and Creo, they wind up fighting at NXT deadline for the titles in December. That would be a great spot for Garza and Creo to take the titles. We've been talking about it for a long time. So I hope that happens. But this was fun. 3.5 stars and a B for the overall package of everything. Uh, there was another Lexus King promo package with him watching like biopic style uh, comments about Brian Pillman. He said Pillman spent more nights in hotels than in his own home, and he can't love someone that he barely knew. King said he planned to restart his career at Halloween Havoc, making his name bigger than Pillman's ever was. This continues to work for me. Now it's time to see him in front of the crowd and in the ring, but the character direction is great. I've seen people comment, I can't believe 
they're not having Brian Pillman Jr. Um, be a character based on his father. It is a character based on his father. Just because the name is Lexus King doesn't mean the character is not about his dad. It's directly about his dad. It's about rebelling against this, you know, picture that people have created in their minds of Brian Pillman, the loose cannon, this guy that he now needs to live up to. He's not trying to live up to him anymore. He's trying to surpass him and he's doing it by making his own name. I mean, it's very clear what this is about. I think they're doing a much better job with Brian Pillman Jr. in this case than they did with Braun Breaker, you know, the way they did his name and changed him up and they kept referencing Steiner. They brought Rick to one show or a couple shows, but, you know, didn't really make it about him. I mean, they really should have. His name still to, to this day should be Braun Steiner or Rex Steiner. They're just way better names than Braun Breaker, which is horrible. Lexus King, yeah, not a great name. I agree. Lex King even would have been better. But at the same time, it's not Brian Pillman Jr. And I think for him, even more so than Braun Breaker, it's important to actually get away from the family. Whereas with Braun, I believe it actually would have benefited him from that. But he's doing just fine, especially now that he's a heel. I'm talking about Breaker, obviously, in that respect. Uh, Tegan Knox fought Lyra Valkyria. Natalia accompanied Knox as they're a burgeoning tag team on Raw. Valkyria hit a Northern Light suplex bridge. Then Knox caught her for that fall away slam bridge that she started doing. She also hit two somersault sentons. Molly go around. Uh, Chelsea Green and Piper Niven came out to distract the Raw women. That was enough for Lyra to hit the roundhouse kick and get the win. The tag teams brawled after. Lyra grabbed the mic, saying her entire career has led up to fighting Lynch. Becky appeared on the Titantron saying Lyra is legit good and therefore was number one on her NXT list, even though Lynch herself is better. Lyra later ripped a picture of them off her locker only for Jade Cargill to appear on the screen tapping her watch as NXT went off the air. So look, same takeaway here as I had after the Becky match with Tegan. She's slow and that's really all there is to say. It sucks that she's so limited because she has the skill set. And she has the look and she has the rest of the package. I really hope that putting her in the tag team division helps hide some of the issues that she's having because she won't have to wrestle as long in the matches. But I mean, she is only 28 years old. And like the way she's moving right now is patently unfair. Maybe it's going to get better with time. I hope so. But it's kind of just rough to see her wrestling right now. Not that she's bad by any means. It's just really, really slow, especially when you compare it to what she did, you know, three, four years ago when she was at full strength. Uh, you already know my take on Lyra's finisher, and you already know my take on Becky's promos. She's the GOAT. It's crazy how effortless it is for her to sell a match like she did here. This felt like the build toward a premium live event match, not a special TV match. And you do have to question why they're doing Becky and Lyra on this show and not necessarily at NXT deadline. It does make you think that Becky's going to have a much bigger opponent for that show. The Jade moment, it did feel real convoluted and out of place. But if she does take the title off Becky and legitimately starts her career in NXT, that would be interesting. They would really have to figure out how to make Lynch not look bad in a loss to a debuting superstar, while simultaneously, they would have to have a plan in place for Cargill to not have the same type of reign that she did with the TBS title in AEW. Because her switching organizations and then going another year without losing, that ain't it. But let's not like put the cart before the horse here. Let's see what goes down, and then we can talk about it when we get a little bit more detail on what they're doing with Jade. Oh, and and with uh, Chelsea and Piper, I should note, great to see them in NXT, even if it was to further a Raw storyline. Again, the Women's Tag Team Champions should be on all three shows, including NXT at least periodically, since they got rid of those 
championships down in NXT. So hopefully this is just the start of them showing up. It does seem right now that they have challengers on Raw. They have at least one challenger on SmackDown. I would really like to see a solid pair of challengers in NXT. Maybe it's Thea Hale and JC Jane. There's some other options out there. That is the next step, I think, for them. Um, Really rebuilding this women's tag team division. I also hope they come back because at some point, we are going to need to see Chelsea complaining to Shawn Michaels. That absolutely has to happen. So they need to go to NXT in order for that to go down. Blair Davenport in a promo package said she still wants to go after Gigi Dolan and dared her for a rubber match in Halloween Havoc so she could end her career. Gigi later said Halloween is her favorite time of the year, and she came across the spin the wheel, make the deal. So she spun it to figure out the stakes for their match, and it landed on a lights out match. There was a kid sitting behind commentary who sold the hell out of this. He was really funny, making it like it was the biggest deal in the world. Now, I haven't cared much about this feud because both of their matches have been absolute shit to this point, but I love this stipulation for a thematic show, and I'm decently excited for the match. We also had Shotzi against Kiana James. Shotzi had new gear that showed a bunch more tattoos than the old gear. She had a great, unique look with her spiked hair and like blue eye makeup. It really sets her apart from the other women. Shotzi hit a nice draping DDT onto the ring apron outside, plus a tope suicida. Roxanne Perez showed up and stole the brick out of James's um, purse. Shotzi then pulled the Eddie Guerrero thing with the bag, dodging Kiana into the post and hitting her senton bomb for the win. Shotzi later put Roxy over backstage for becoming more ballsy and growing up from last year. They came across the same wheel, so Roxy spun it for a Devil's Playground match. I believe that's a cage match with weapons, which was a really cool visual last time. Every time I see Shotzi, I just get angry that she hasn't gotten more run on the main roster. Crazy talented, unique look. She can speak naturally. I just want to see much more of her, and I want it to happen soon. Solid match from bell to bell. The right booking based on last week and a nice backstage segment with the faces coming together. It's also pretty cool. And I forgot to mention this about the last segment, but we're getting, I think, the first lights out match since the Wendy Chu match, which was awesome and like underrated to a significant degree. So I hope that Blair and Gigi can live up to that. Von Wagner was shown with his head wrapped in gauze, getting physical therapy as he tried to regain his motor skills after Braun Breaker's attack. Mr. Stone was there rooting him on. Von appreciated him for risking his life at no mercy, attacking Braun like he did. Stone was confident Wagner would finish Breaker when he reaches 100%. That gave Wagner motivation to keep going. The acting is just so D-movie that it's really hard to buy into it, but they're trying something. And it probably will get over in front of fans once Wagner returns. And we got an inkling on when that is going to be. Braun Breaker backstage said he was the biggest attraction in NXT history. Stone came up, so Breaker asked how he's doing, only to say he really didn't care. Stone went off about Braun nearly ending Vaughn's career. Breaker goaded him a little bit. Stone was all juiced up, and he challenged him to a match at Halloween Havoc, which I believe is just going to be Robbie's second NXT match ever in his entire career down there. Obviously, we'll get the return of Wagner during this match, but Stone showed a lot more promo ability in this segment than Wagner has in his entire career combined. Akira Tozawa showed it up in NXT looking for Noam Dar, who was at the hospital with Jakara Jackson. She had to withdraw from the breakout tournament as she was not medically cleared. Nothing really happened here, but Tozawa going after the Heritage Cup, that would actually be pretty cool. Ariana Grace fought Brynlee Reese in the breakout tournament. Grace's gimmick is Miss NXT with a sash and a crown. She spoke about accepting the buy from Jakara, only for Reese to come in as her challenger. Brinley looked like a body Donna from 30 years ago, and I feel really old making that reference, but that is what it reminded me of. She hit the cartwheel lariat like 
twice as well as Charlotte Flair does. Grace ultimately thumbed the eye and hit a really interesting one-armed flip-over slam uh, for the win. Grace was obviously more seasoned, but I got to say, Reese did pretty well for herself, getting thrown right into this, and she is not long in the Performance Center, so pretty cool. Carmen Petrovic fought Jada Parker in the second breakout tournament match. Parker showed a ton of charisma in her pre-match promo. She laid Petrovic on the second rope and basically did like a springboard seated splash onto her torso. Petrovic came back with a falling kick to Parker's back and then put her in a headlock, but with her knee and her thigh for a win in four minutes. There's worse places to be, I would say for sure. Gonna look good, but she's got me saying, hey now. Uh, Parker impressed more than Petrovic, but both were immensely green. So really tough to take anything from this match at all. Uh, Lola Weiss now has to be the heavy favorite to win this tournament. They went even younger, I think, than usual with the field here and less experienced than usual. And it's really not been a great tournament so far. I don't really see it picking up much either, which is unfortunate. But maybe Lola does something in the final two matches to make her seem like a clear deserving winner. And she's probably the most advanced out of anyone that's in the tournament. So it does make sense for her to take it. And that was really it uh, from NXT this week. I did find it interesting. I think there were four women's matches on the show, a ton of women's storytelling as you usually get in NXT. Uh, but coming out of that Raw on Monday where 18 different women were featured, and then you saw that again um, on Tuesday night with a lot of women being featured as well, it just really makes you feel good about the way WWE is handling that division right now. There's still you know, a lot of issues, and we've talked about them extensively on the podcast, it just does seem to be heading in the right direction, which is certainly overall a positive. So with that said, let's go ahead and move over to AEW. And again, let me reiterate, there is a huge amount of stuff to talk about. Not only do we have Collision, Rampage, and Dynamite from this week, but there were a lot of extraneous segments and happenings from Collision and Rampage last week that we did not get to cover on the show. So I'm going to mix those in here also there are a couple storylines right now where I don't want to necessarily say they're all being purposely threaded together, but individuals from them are getting involved in more than one thing, which is a huge positive in general. But for the format of this show, it's not really a huge positive because we don't do like a main event and then a good, the bad and the ugly. And even if I did a main event, the main event would probably be like 12 different segments because they all kind of touched each other in one way or another. So point being, I organized this in the best way I thought I could to cover everything that we missed from last week and everything that happened in AEW this week. And I think by the time we get to the end of it, it all makes sense, the order that I chose. So let's start with last week's collision. There was a tag team championship match, FTR defending against Ricky Starks and Big Bill. Commentary pointed out before the bell, the champions were all taped up. Starks ran Dax Harwood into Cash Wheeler at the bell. He went after Dax's shoulder. Big Bill then chokeslammed Wheeler through the announce table. I think that's the first time they've done a ringside table collapse before. It kind of exploded. Little wood pieces went everywhere. It, it made me think it was really not supposed to do that or not built to do that. It looked like it was made out of like particle board from Ikea. Anyway, uh, Bill chokeslammed Dax. Ricky demanded he do it twice more, so he did. And then Starks hit the spear for the title change in like five minutes. Later backstage, Bill said they're stars and Ricky decided there would be no rematch. So total surprise of a title change last week. It was a surprise in the moment and probably the most interesting thing that's happened in AEW's tag team division for quite some time. I presume this was more about a legitimate rib injury for cash than it was the gun arrest, but it definitely seems like 
This was not a long-term plan, but rather a booking decision instead of going an interim title route, perhaps. And that's something that plagued AEW for a long time a couple of years ago. It seems like a no-brainer FTR is going to regain the titles when they're healthy and when they put themselves back in position, but maybe Starks and Bill can do something with them. They've been a strong pair to this point. A fun little side note here is that Cody Rhodes and Jey Uso won the undisputed WWE tag team titles just like 10 minutes after this happened because it was both on Saturday night and this happened during WWE Fastlane. That's probably the first time something like that has happened in decades. And I'm not even sure that happened with the same division belts in the WWF WCW era. So I just thought that was pretty cool. On Collision this week, Adam Copeland opened to a strong chant of Adam and Tony Schiavone talked about it like it was a return pop. Christian Cage then entered with his guys and a bunch of security, basically just telling Copeland, leave. I'm in the main event. It's my show. Brian Danielson came out. It was revealed not only was BCC banned from ringside, but so was his crew. Then Starks and Bill came out with Ricky standing behind security. Starks made a comment about Copeland keeping his bug eyes off of him. Copeland shot back a snide comment about Ricky's silk slacks. Uh, Starks shot back that Edge didn't take style with him from the other place. Then Copeland shot back that Starks stole his style from The Rock, then called him a vanilla midget version of that and told him to know his role. Starks commented, that really set me over the edge. There's zero chance that the Starks-Copeland interaction was planned to go this way. Clearly contentious between them, to the point that Brian had a look on his face like, what the hell are you guys doing right now? That said, I wish it was planned, albeit in a better, nicer way, because that was a moment where both guys looked like they were getting some solid shots in. But you could tell Copeland was acting out of a place of like anger, That's strange. He kept interrupting Starks. It felt malicious to a degree. Undoubtedly unprofessional, particularly the vanilla midget part of the entire thing. And I say that word, let me be clear, because I'm uh, quoting Copeland in this case. It's fine to give younger wrestlers like sink or swim moments. Don't get me wrong. It felt like Copeland was acting out because he got tweaked rather than like considering the gravity of doing what he did. So then FTR comes out saying they defended the titles last week, even though medical told them that they didn't have to basically reducing the value of the title change that just happened. FTR said they wanted to fight, and Brian suggested his match go next. Then the faces took out all the security. This was undoubtedly like a convoluted segment, the best part of which was unplanned and maybe a problem. Uh, On Collision, the TNT Championship main evented Christian against Brian. Danielson sold his arm throughout the match. Cage focused on it. Brian ate a tough backdrop on the ring apron, but much later came back with a flying headbutt. At some point, Christian gigged himself just a little bit, not too much. He had a really bad frog splash, and then he countered Brian's kicks into an inverted DDT. Danielson countered a spear with a kick and a head kick. Uh, Christian countered the psycho knee with a spear, then he hit kill switch for a false finish. Brian then dodged him and hit the psycho knee for a perfect 2.9 false finish. He put in half a label lock because of his arm. Bill distracted, Starks ran in with a belt shot on Danielson, and he played dead at ringside, and then Christian covered for the title retention in 25 minutes. Of course, Brian got attacked five on one after the bell, so FTR and then eventually Copeland made two sets of saves with Nick Wayne taking a spear to end the show on a high note for the babyfaces. So the match was actually like five minutes too long, I would say, dragged in the middle, but the finish was fantastic. Completely exceeded my expectations because of that. Without a clean finish, it's tough to go too high, but I'm saying four stars A minus. The post-match was formulaic, but it did pay off the opening segment. I'm just not sure where all of this is going with Brian's involvement. Unless he's now out of it going forward, everyone else being involved makes sense, especially given Copeland's friendship with FTR. But 
Brian just kind of feels ham-fisted into the entire thing. On Dynamite, Rene Paquette interviewed Copeland, who reiterated that his reason for coming to AEW was to end his career with Christian, though it became obvious that Christian didn't want that as he came closer to signing. If that's the case, why would Copeland have tried to start up with him during the first promo a couple weeks ago if he knew that's not what he wanted? Anyway, Copeland told their story of personal and professional relationship and said he's not in AEW to take Christian's spotlight or the TNT title. He said he doesn't want to fight him and doesn't know what he wants, other than to tell him that Luchasaurus and Wayne will eventually leave him high and dry. It was nice to see a different style segment from AEW, but literally nothing was learned here. It was a repetition of everything Copeland has said in various segments where he's had the microphone already. I get they want him on as many shows as possible right now, but we need actual storyline progression. This felt like it had zero momentum whatsoever. On Dynamite, Sting came out 90 minutes into the show, reflecting on his career and naming a ton of his former opponents and peers. Hulk Hogan got booed. Ric Flair got cheered. Sting said his retirement in 2015 didn't sit right with him, and he reminded everyone that back then, he said the only thing sure about Sting is nothing's for sure. Sting said he debuted with AEW at 2021 Revolution and will have his retirement match at 2024 Revolution. He said this time... It is for sure. Terrific promo from Sting. Probably the best thing he's done on the mic in AEW, and appropriately so, given the gravity of the situation. Revolution has not been announced yet, but it's looking like he's got about five months left to either wrap things up with Darby Allen or start his retirement feud, or maybe that's one and the same. Start his retirement feud with Darby Allen. It does feel like Darby should be the one to retire Sting, just because of their three-year relationship, Steve could pass over the bat to him. There's a lot of things they could do. At the same time, perhaps Darby can just be in his corner and Sting can actually take on someone of significance that can give him an incredible match, whether that's Kenny Omega, MJF, John Moxley, Brian Danielson. They all would have much better matches with Sting than Darby would, just because Darby relies so much on the speed and athleticism. Sting obviously cannot do what Darby does or keep up with him in that way. This is going to pop huge ticket sales, and I would guess a major buy rate for AEW if they promote this right. That makes me think they're not going to be doing it at like a regular 10,000-seat arena. I wouldn't be surprised if they at least go to a much bigger arena or maybe something else, but we will see. On Collision, Nick Wayne said he would explain himself to his mom and everyone else on Dynamite. The graphic for this with his mom and Jim Ross, it was pretty damn funny. So JR moderated this in a backstage segment on Dynamite. She said she didn't recognize Nick and doesn't understand why he chose Christian of all people after everything he said about his father. Nick said Christian was a better father than his dad ever was. Then Christian came in and put his hand on his shoulder. She slapped Nick across the face and he said she's dead to him. Christian remarked that she should have picked up the phone when he called. Then the door closed only for us to find out Darby Allen attacked both of them, but the video cut off like mid-attack for no reason whatsoever. Eventually, we saw that attack brawl uh, out onto the ramp. Luchasaurus attacked Darby, so Sting saved him. Nick, it seems like, lost a tooth for real during this. Really, the only problem with this for me was the production quality across the board, especially in the backstage segment where it was extremely rough. But everything else is pretty much well done. In terms of the brawl afterward, it remains ridiculous to me that like 64-year-old Sting looks as dominant as he does lumbering around the ring against younger active guys who just sell their asses off for him. But I mean, I guess that's the character. 
The interview definitely made Nick and Christian look like big pieces of shit. And I loved Cage's comment about basically taking Nick because the mom wouldn't pick up her phone when he called. That was a very good line. On last week's Rampage, Claudio Castagnoli and Wheeler Yuta beat a couple of jobbers with a fastball special. I guess the idea is to build them into a tag team. It just felt like a waste of TV time. And then on Rampage this week, they defeated Gates of Agony in the main event. Claudio broke up the heels finisher. Yuta hit an Olympic slam. And then they hit the fastball special again for the one, two, three. So yeah, clearly they're establishing them as a team. They also got babyface cheers. I always find it interesting how quickly Blackpool Combat Club can go heel babyface heel with like many times not even doing anything just based on who they're feuding with. Last week on Collision, it was a trios title match. Another one, the acclaimed and Billy Gunn against Iron Savages. Max Caster impressively tossed the biggest dude off his shoulders. Acclaimed hit their original finisher and got the win. Now, why did Acclaimed defend the titles against a jobber trio that never wins? No idea. How did they get a title match in the first place? Who the fuck knows? There's way too many titles and way too many nonsensical title matches in AEW, which is actually a way bigger problem than the titles themselves. I looked it up. Acclaimed has defended the titles seven times in five weeks. Only one of the seven challengers earned the chance to be a top contender, and that was Dark Order. On Collision this week, Acclaimed backstage had Caster hoping MJF saw the hard work they were putting in. Gunn said they'll support Caster and help him make friends. Then JAS came up saying MJF thinks he's a loser and the scissoring and all that stuff is stale. That's not necessarily untrue. Then they challenged for the titles. We'll get back to JAS later in the show. Uh, You know how I felt about the segment. I don't even have to tell you. Also, the reason they keep mentioning how many days they are champions is because three weeks from the time of this segment, they will have been champions for 69 days, which obviously will be a thing that they do. Last week on Rampage, Penta El Zero Miedo fought Lince Dorado, Johnny TV, and Commander in a Ring of Honor number one contendership match. Eddie Kingston backstage cut a promo on the match when Jeff Jarrett's crew talked shit to him about disrespecting Jay Lethal. Eddie said he would defend against Jay when he proves he's worthy and not a clown like the rest of them. Stokely Hathaway, who helps book ROH and Kayfabe, then whispered an idea to Sanjay Dutt. Kingston was on commentary, and Dorado was a totally random addition to this. Commander hit his awesome tightrope springboard plancha outside, and then a tightrope 450 on Dorado inside for the win. Probably the right winner given the challengers, but as I always say, it's immensely frustrating the way Penta is booked as a single, and really it's frustrating the way he's booked in general, but especially as a single. So last week on Collision, we got Kingston against Commander for the ROH title. This was actually the main event match. Commander hit a 450. Eddie caught a handspring. Commander countered into a tornado DDT. Then Kingston caught him with the back fist for the win. I'd actually like to have seen Kingston dominate this match more. He's a bona fide star in AEW, and Commander's like a low-card guy. I was pleased that Commander looked good, but he almost looked too good for a match like this, if that makes sense. I should also note, just sticking with the ROH thing for a moment, On Rampage this week, Trent Beretta fought Jay Lethal. Lethal took advantage of the injured knee that Trent was selling by kicking it out from under him and heating Lethal Injection for the win. This was obviously to build his profile for an eventual ROH title match, but at the same time, we got no indication of what Stokely Hathaway said to their crew that one would assume precipitated this match. But, you know, again, it's just a lot of convoluted stuff. On Collision, also this week, Christopher Daniels fought Juice Robinson. The match legitimately happened for no reason. Robinson took a nasty bump on a Death Valley driver before winning with a punch, a cannonball, and Juice is loose. The heels kind of stalked around CD before Juice was proposed to by White with a ring. He said he's been knocking people out with his left hand for years, so with the ring, he'll do even better. 
but he doesn't need the ring to knock people out. Yet he still wants the Dynamite Diamond ring to hurt MJF. Then White talked more shit to MJF, basically saying he was going to win the title officially. So let's be clear about two things. The White angle is a direct pivot from the CM Punk real world champion feud. And this is a pivot from the anti-Semitic quarters angle that started on Dynamite days before. I appreciate that they changed the storyline rather than continue on. But it remains pathetic that no one from AEW, not Tony Khan himself, nor even the media relations team, addressed what was a huge black eye for the brand. They basically just assumed people would forget about it in the news cycle. You should be better than that for a brand that has put itself over about diversity and inclusion and all those grand things. And then they run that angle next week and they just, they have no backbone to support it themselves or to apologize for it or do anything. Juice was put in a really shitty situation and this was just not a good segment. I heard people say, this is such a smart pivot that they're doing this. I mean, I guess him buying a $25 cubic zirconia ring from TJ Maxx and using that as a weapon is better than the roll of quarters. Sure, I wouldn't say it's a great pivot. He really could have just said, I don't need the ring. I want the ring. My left hand is strong enough to knock you out on its own and just like ended it right there. But there was some comedy with it and people did like it. So that's fine. Maybe it just wasn't my taste. On Collision, Dustin Rhodes got a promo package about getting a chance to wrestle in Texas again, saying he's as good as he's ever been. He's also said he's going to win the Dynamite Diamond Ring and he's going to beat MJF for his title. My response, Jennifer Lawrence, okay, sure, dot GIF. I guess they needed to show that at least one other person actually cared about the ring beside Juice. That's the only reason they could have done this. On Dynamite, Penta El Zero Miedo fought Jay White. First on Rampage, White talked shit to Penta for no reason, just basically teasing him about Ray Phoenix losing the international title. Penta snapped back at that. He said, hey, at least Phoenix won his title, whereas you, Jay, you stole the one you're carrying. There was an exceptional counter into Made in Japan right in the middle of this match. It was awesome. The heels distracted Juice hit Penta with his left hand, and then White hit Blade Runner for the win. Disappointing only because it felt like the finishing sequence was just getting started. And then we got the distractions and the cheap victory. Another four or five minutes would have made this a straight banger. Still damn good, 3.5 stars and a B, but I did think we'd get like a four-star match or better given the talent of both of these guys. After the match, White reiterated the challenge for MJF to find some people to get his back so they can basically do an eight-man match with the physical ownership of the title on the line. Juice then cut a promo about taking the ring, saying he would pawn it and get himself another gold tooth. It just felt like the same thing being said over and over again with nothing extra happening. On Dynamite, MJF chose to address them immediately after this backstage because he said he's not a dumb babyface who's going to just go out there and get beaten down four on one. He said he'd be on commentary for the main event and White is just cosplaying with the title like so many fans do. MJF hoped Juice would win the Battle Royal so he could hit him with the ring. Then when asked about Adam Cole, MJF was interrupted by acclaimed. Caster repeated, they got his back and said that we can scissor after we win. So then Caster suggested that he enter the Battle Royal, beat MJF, and force him to put a ring on it when he wins. It ended with Caster calling MJF my scumbag. Now, this was actual storyline continuation for both of them. That was positive. Not much else to say, really. On Dynamite, Wardlow hit one powerbomb on Ryan Nemeth, and the match was ruled a knockout win in like 20 seconds. Then Tony Schiavone asked Wardlow why he was back and what he wanted, so Wardlow showed a wrist tape that read MJF. Then he stormed past Schiavone, knocking him down and basically indicating that he's now a heel. The idea of MJF fighting a war on multiple fronts is good, 
especially if they're going to take the title off of him. And this whole thing continued a little bit later. We'll get to it in a moment. On Dynamite, we had the Dynamite Diamond Ring Battle Royal. I'm not sure if this was a change, but I noticed Dustin's music basically started with like a gold dust style entrance and all his graphics were gold. I think previously they were red. Caster also brought his best rap in a long time, like months, totally on point, some real strong lines. MJF was on commentary, but went down and gave Dustin a very obviously fake $50 bill as a bribe so Dustin could ring Juice's bells. Uh, then Daniel Garcia took a Canadian destroyer from him. Garcia, Daddy Magic, Dustin, Caster, and Juice were the final five. Garcia eliminated Dustin and Magic, leaving a final three. His dancing led to an elimination by Caster. Caster the mic drop in the ring as White attacked MJF on commentary. MJF got over on him and took his title back, only for White to low blow him and regain it. Then Juice put on the TJ Maxx ring, hit Caster with the left hand, and won the battle royal as expected. This was not a good match by any means. So it's going to be one-on-one next week for the ring. And clearly there was an effort here for MJF and Caster to be simultaneously victimized by Bullet Club Gold, which should allow them to get on the same page for the eight-man tag team match, which is smart. Ju should probably take the ring to give him something unique to go like with the left-hand gimmick that he's doing and make it seem like MJF might be dropping the title. Otherwise, we enter year five of this like being a prop and... MJF just keeps defending it and owning it and like nothing has happened ever really with it other than the fact that he can use it as a way to cheat to win. If Juice takes it from him, there could be a moment in the Jay White match where he reaches into his gear and then realizes, oh my God, I don't have the ring. I don't have the crutch that I've fallen back on. Or they can save that and have that happen in another feud. But it requires him to lose the ring for that to happen. On collision, Kyle Fletcher beat that guy Boulder in three minutes with a powerbomb off the ropes and a dragon sleeper. This huge, strong guy tapped out in three seconds to the dragon sleeper. Fletcher then challenged Kenny Omega one-on-one for Dynamite. I'm always appreciative when half of a tag team gets feature chances when their partner gets injured, like what's happening right now with Ivar and WWE. But at the same time, it is very clear, at least to me, that Fletcher is Tony Khan's like new toy to get other people over. And I would not be shocked if he wears himself out taking the fall for other stars. And like a month from now, we just stop seeing him or he's not put in a position of prominence. There was no reason for this match to be on TV when Fletcher is already established. They could have just done the promo. On Dynamite, Adam Cole was still at Roderick Strong's house with Kingdom. He gave him hot coffee, which Strong spit out. So Cole went to leave. Strong reminded that Cole used to make the best peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in Ring of Honor. So Cole was kind of juiced up to make them. But I got to tell you, I have never seen a more disgusting peanut butter and jelly sandwich be made. The peanut butter was liquidy and like dripping on the bread. The preserves that they had were like brown and dark with seeds in them. I mean, peanut butter and jelly, let's be very clear about this, okay? It is, well, for me, it's creamy. If you like crunchy peanut butter, I accept that. But a high quality, creamy peanut butter and then grape jelly or strawberry jam or something very basic like that is how you make a good PB&J. Whatever this was, it looked absolutely disgusting. And that just turned me off from a personal standpoint. Forget about wrestling. Uh, But Strong spit it out, not because he didn't like the way it tasted or looked, which is what I probably would have done, but because he doesn't like crust. And he was angry that Cole did not cut the crust off for him. So Cole finally snapped and left despite Strong calling out for him. Then Strong decided the only way to get Cole back was to be nice to MJF. Look, I know some of you love all of these. Outside of a couple individual moments here and there, I just think these are trash. Like it does not make sense 
why Adam Cole would be at Roderick Strong's place for multiple weeks, hand and foot on him, you know, Kingdom not doing anything. They're not being cell phone service, never calling an Uber. Like <laughs> he wasn't kidnapped. So why was he stuck there out of fealty to Strong? The best friend that he told wasn't his best friend anymore. He went back to MJF. It, the whole thing just doesn't make any shred of sense. I, I hate it. I really do. I'm glad he's out of there. And hopefully things get a lot better next week. On Dynamite, Don Callis came out with the family. Callis put over Powerhouse Hobbs for destroying Chris Jericho. Hobbs then got angry, telling a clearly fake story about trying to meet Jericho in 1998, only for him and his grandma to get yelled at and told to sit down and get away from him. Callis said the family is undefeated in four months, except for the match where Fletcher screwed them over by losing. So Fletcher came out, bumped Callis, and said he would prove he doesn't need any help to beat Omega. Callis said if Fletcher wins, he might have an opportunity for him. On its own, didn't care much for this, but it did a great job making an otherwise meaningless match feel meaningful. Also, at least we are finally done with the book of Hobbs shit, and that is a huge positive. So we had Kenny Omega against Fletcher. Before the match, Omega said he would take down Fletcher, then get over the Callis family, and eventually go after the AEW title again. MJF walked up, shook his hand, and whispered, 13 days, bitch. This is referring to MJF surpassing Omega as the longest reigning champion, 13 days from Dynamite. Omega hit a Poison Rana and his V-trigger sequence. Fletcher countered One Winged Angel into a Dragon Sleeper, but Omega escaped, did a great V-trigger while running the ropes, and then hit One Winged Angel for the win in 13 minutes. Extremely strong, very fun match. 3.75 stars, B+. Okay, so now that we're out of all of this, let's take a beat because that was a lot of stuff that had to do with one another even if only a couple of the individuals from the storylines were connected. But the long and short of it is that AEW is making a significant investment in putting a huge target on MJF's back. Right now, he has Wardlow angry at him for personal reasons that may not involve the title. White is his chief immediate contender for the next pay-per-view. Juice is going after him to help Jay. Omega's record reign is in danger, though he does have bigger fish to fry right now. Samoa Joe somehow is involved with him despite being defeated clean. Strong claims that he's ready to make good, but probably is still out to get MJF. Cole obviously is waiting in the wings despite the injury. We don't exactly know what's going to happen there. And let's not forget whoever actually wore the devil mask that attacked White and set that feud into motion is clearly going after MJF as well. What makes the most sense for Omega is a match against MJF inside of the next two weeks before he eclipses the rain. It's not gonna happen next week because MJF is fighting Juice, but they haven't announced it for two weeks out. And you would think that if you're gonna have MJF Kenny Omega for the AEW title, you would announce that two weeks out for ticket sales reasons. Now, it would be easy to book that for a Dynamite and all you would need to do is have someone from the Callis family cost Omega the match. Juice is obviously happening next week. I just mentioned that. Wardlow seems like it's a bit of a slower burn. Something with Strong, especially with Cole being injured, that feels like it's a slower burn now too. And the Joe interest, again, it just doesn't really make sense because he's already been beaten clean. The other option might be some type of eliminator tournament involving many of these names and maybe one or two percolate and get involved as well. But they kind of just did an eliminator tournament that involved two of these people, Strong and Joe. So I'm definitely curious to see how all of this plays out and ultimately, the way the plan 
comes to fruition. But with so many people going after MJF, it does make me feel like he retains against White, which I was iffy about happening entering this week of AEW TV. So let's move on from this. On Rampage, Sky Blue fought Emi Sakura. Emi hit a great double underhook inverted backbreaker, but Sky countered her finisher with a super kick and a code blue for the win in four minutes. Sky also had darker eye makeup than usual, which may be alluding to her slowly turning alongside House of Black because she took the mist from Julia Hart at one point. I realized here, I really do not like code blue. It takes way too long to develop, and the opponent is bent over just looking like an absolute idiot, at least the way it was done in this match. It was not good, but it was nice to see Sky get a win back. She's taken a lot of L's recently, but we'll talk about the circumstances of this momentarily. So on Collision the next night, Chris Statlander fought Sky and defended the TBS title against her. So obviously that's why she got the win 24 hours earlier. She also came out with even more drastic eye makeup, even though it was only 24 hours. Blue powerbomb Stat off the ropes, but got caught flying for a power slam. Stat soon caught her with Saturday Night Fever for the title retention. I like this match a lot. B, 3.25 stars. Willow Nightingale ran out with some dark eye makeup of her own. She stopped Stat from helping Sky and then helped her up herself. She was also wearing black and gray as opposed to her normal bright colors. So clearly something is going on here. So let's remember, Sky Blue beat Emi Sakura. Then she lost the next night to Chris Statlander. On Dynamite, Hikaru Shida fought Emi Sakura in an eliminator match for the women's championship. The woman who lost on Rampage a couple days earlier. The entire build for this match was a short video package where we were told that Sakura was Shida's trainer. Let's remember that Sakura lost straight up five days ago, yet got this match because reasons. So Sakura hit a real nice Tiger driver. Shida came back with her katana for a kickout at one before Sakura caught her in a pinning combination for what was definitely a 3.2, but was instead a false finish. Shida then hit a Falcon Arrow and a roundhouse kick for the win in nine minutes. This was even better than the stat and blue match. 3.5 stars B. I kind of wish that Sakura caught her up in like a pinning combination. That way they could have a title match on a big show that went longer. But this is one of the problems with the Eliminators. A strong opponent and a potentially strong storyline was wasted on a throwaway dynamite match with like 24 hours of build. And that's always frustrating. On Collision, CJ Perry backstage made a pitch to potential clients that she wants to represent people who feel like they've been on the side while their partner gets the spotlight and attention. She said that she wants to make champions and stars. Action Andretti came in saying he could benefit from her services. Man, they are really starting her off with bottom of the barrel if it's Action Andretti. But Andretti was actually awful in his promo here. My thought for how this could work is if Miro just murders every person she tries to manage until they both realize independently they need to work together. That would be a solid payoff for this entire angle one that to this point has been massively boring as far as I'm concerned. If that's not what they're doing, Wardlow would make a lot of sense for her, maybe someone like Daniel Garcia. The Miro cut a promo package later saying the pursuit of gold will make Perry more vicious and angry unless he kills it off at every turn. Then he pulled Andretti into the screen saying he'll destroy every single man to protect her. Except despite Andretti being under his arm clearly prone, Miro did not beat the shit out of him. And instead, later in collision, they announced a match between them next week. Which, just, just beat the shit out of the guy. You got him right there. Kill him. What are you doing? So, okay, they are going with the angle that I was just talking about. And I 
gave you the note that way because it was my thought coming out of the segment as I was taking notes. And then I wanted to see what they would do. So they are doing that angle. That's a huge positive. Certainly not the best execution of it. Plus, the way he cut his promo, it didn't exactly fit with the original concept of Miro wanting nothing to do with her and not caring what she does. I do find the entire angle a bit convoluted, but I really do have some level of hope that it works out in the end. On Dynamite, Prince Nana was boosting Swerve Strickland, who said he's not as excited about his new music video because Hangman Page cost him a chance at the TNT title. Swerve said Hangman should have left well enough alone and told him, it's not always you that pays for your actions. Sounds like he's probably gonna be going after the Young Bucks or something like that. Great promo from Swerve, as per usual. I like the environment that they cut the promo in. The whole package was really good. Pretty clear we're gonna get Swerve Hangman most likely at the next pay-per-view in November. On Collision, there was a hype package for Mystico, who's randomly gonna be making his debut on Rampage this week against Rocky Romero. This is the former Sin Cara in WWE who is currently having a total career resurgence with CMLL in Mexico. Each of them are current CMLL champions and they're gonna be fighting for the pound for pound crown. Apparently, AEW has reached a deal with CMLL to use some of their wrestlers and apparently AAA is okay with that despite the promotions absolutely detesting each other. Couple thoughts on this. On one hand, really strong match booking. If there's one thing Tony Khan does well, it's matchmaking. We have always said that his matchmaking is way, way better than his booking. On the other hand, it's two more titles appearing on AEW TV that have absolutely nothing to do with AEW. And it's a match that has minor build coming in and has nothing again to do with AEW storylines. Forget the titles. It's just Here's a really good wrestling match, and we're going to put it on our show. Now, apparently this was done because Dynamite, where Rampage was going to be taped or was taped, uh, is in Texas, and there's a significant Mexican population in the city that they were running specifically, and it worked. Apparently, they sold a couple thousand Dynamite tickets because they booked this match. I find that to be a worthy enough reason to hold the match, especially given they're still a month away from full gear, so they didn't take time away from something else to do this and plus they put it on Rampage. At the same time, it's fair to point out everything I just pointed out. I figured the match would be fantastic, but at the same time, when I watch AEW, I want AEW. I don't want ROH, I don't want AAA, I don't want CMLL. If you wanna do Forbidden Door with New Japan and then a second similar event later in the year with the Mexican talent, I am down for that. Or if you wanna make Forbidden Door, not just AEW and New Japan, but you want to open it up and you want to do another event later in the year that's very similar to that, cool. But when there's a ton of people on the roster not doing shit and you're just like throwing another promotions match onto your show, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. When was the last time Andrade Alidolo was on TV at this point? When was the last time Malachi Black was on TV at this point? I do think he might be injured. Um, But Buddy Matthews is back from Australia. He wasn't on TV. Like there's so many people and that's just, scratching the surface, honestly. Uh, Scorpio Sky, I mean, I can go on. There are so many people and they're just not used. And yet someone who signed to New Japan and someone who signed to CMLL, they're gonna be fighting each other on Rampage this coming Friday. I can't wait for the match. I'm very excited. I think it's gonna be great, but that is the circumstance of it. Last week on Collision, Shane Taylor and Keith Lee did the promo exchange where they knew what the other was saying. Lee said that he wouldn't let Taylor make his name off him. Taylor said Lee getting more opportunities makes people think he's better when he's actually not. It was solid and it's leading to some big time meat, so that's gonna be good. And then this week on Collision, Keith squashed someone named Turbo Floyd 
in one minute. The heels watched backstage, but nothing else happened. I'm not really sure how squashing this jobber actually made Keith look good ahead of a big match. That didn't really work for me. On Collision, the ROH TV title was on the line, Samoa Joe against Willie Mack. So undoubtedly here. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. Mack hit a stunner, then went to the ropes for no reason whatsoever. Joe picked him off the top rope with a muscle buster to retain the title. This got a much better reaction than I expected. It still didn't feel necessary to be on collision when Mac is not an established character on this brand. I went three slabs of beef here. Last week on Rampage, the Hardys and best friends fought the old JAS crew. The heels got knocked into Anna J outside, which distracted Daniel Garcia. He ate a full slate of finishers, including a swanton bomb to his crotch for the babyface win. Garcia later criticized the other guys backstage, saying he was trying to win by himself. Daddy Magic snapped at him for being more concerned about dancing. Cool Hand said they failed as a family, which was the point of working together. I didn't like Garcia taking the fall in the match, but the backstage segment tied it all together. It just kind of feels like they're going to rejoin with Chris Jericho sooner than later once he makes amends. And it just because otherwise there's no reason for all four of these guys to still be together. Then on Rampage this week, the Hardys fought the old JAS guys. Actually, it was the Hardys and Isaiah Cassidy against the old JAS guys. I shit you not. I spent the first five minutes of this match thinking my DVR did not record the new Rampage. I was really confused. I checked the cage match. I was looking at the cards. I just, I didn't understand because it was basically the same guys in the ring with the exception of best friends. Garcia did his dance and hit a really interesting, like lifted code breaker out of a DDT formation and got the win. I really liked that move. I didn't give a shit about the match. Daddy Magic argued with Garcia afterwards for dancing and I guess taking the spotlight. Then Jake Hager and Cool Hand basically had Garcia's back saying, hey, we won. That's all that really matters. On Dynamite, there was an interview segment with Orange Cassidy, Hook, Stat, and Best Friends. Stat said she was offering a title match to Willow because she deserves it. Orange said he didn't know what he had until he lost it, and he's glad he has the international championship back because he has unfinished business with it. This was the entire build for two Battle of the Belts title matches, which means we're going to have six hours again to talk about next week. Miro is getting a chance at the international title in a triple threat with someone else involved to take the fall, and Orange is going to keep the title almost assuredly. What's strange is that Orange was so battered, bruised, and broken, but all he needed was three weeks, and he's fully healthy, back as champion, no problems whatsoever. On Collision, Roosh voiced a video package declaring that he's back, and the faction has turned into a group of real killers who will humiliate the rest of the roster. Good-looking package. Something must have happened to delay the return because they were doing this stuff like all the way out two months ago. Last week on Rampage, Ortiz backstage cut a promo into the camera saying Mike Santana's thug persona is a defense mechanism for him being a child on the inside. He said Santana spit on him and fans who look up to him as an idol. Then he promised to injure the other knee. This actually seemed like a story where they might get back together at the end of it. I still don't care one iota about it, but at least it's appropriately on Rampage instead of on a show that matters. This week on Rampage, Ortiz said that he realized Santana was never standing with him, just next to him, and now his goal is to hurt him. Then Santana walked up. They argued about Ortiz not being there for him when Santana was down. Ortiz pointed out they hadn't spoken like a whole year prior to that. This was better than anything they've done previously. It didn't change the level I care about it, which is pretty much zero. And again, it's very obvious that this entire story is being told on the third show. On Dynamite, Lance Archer returned and squashed a jobber in one minute. There's way too many of these matches on Dynamite and Collision. At least most of the time when they happen, there's a promo or there's a reason for it. No reason was provided here. And then lastly, uh, last week on Rampage, there was a vignette for the return of Danhausen to the tune of My Fair Lady. Obviously, not a massive fan of the gimmick, 
but it was kind of cool. Problem is we got pretty much the exact same one on Collision and then pretty much the exact same one on Dynamite as well. I presume he's coming back the day after Halloween, but I got to say, I'm shocked that they're promoting his return this much because he's just not a needle mover, but I know that there are a lot of people who like him. And that wraps up this week plus in the world of AEW, a lot more interconnected storytelling than usual, which did make Collision and Dynamite more interesting. At the same time, there was a lot that felt drawn out and a little bit convoluted. And now that we're fully past the craziness of the NXT battle, they have plenty of time until the next pay-per-view. I do hope things gel and unwind a little bit, really this coming week between Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite. So that, folks, wraps up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Obviously, we had an absolute ton to cover. On the way out, let me hit you first with the reminders. We all need to remember that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead and support the show. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You will get news posts, you will get bonus audio, and your financial contributions will help pay our bills and support the Silver King and Vintage. In terms of what's coming up here on Getting Over, it seems like we're going to have our second straight normal week. So let's fingers crossed. Hope it stays that way. We'll be back on Tuesday with our next WWE episode and then Thursday for our AEW and NXT episode. I appreciate all of you listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Bye for now.